We're changing the climate. We're destroying the ocean by overfishing. We've overcleared the land. We've caused an extinction crisis. Forecasts are we could lose up to a million species. Well, that's like pulling all the rivets out of all the airplanes and saying, let's continue to fly. We just can't continue this way. We've got to change. That's Harvey Locke, one of the world's foremost experts on biodiversity. He's also a fellow of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. He's our guest on this special episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Hi, I'm David McGuffin. A big welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. As I'm recording this, the world's leaders are meeting in Glasgow for what is being described as the most important summit on climate change ever. Right now, we're at a tipping point, the experts tell us. If we don't stop abusing the planet with CO2 emissions and our destruction of nature, we'll lose our ability to reverse climate change and the life-destroying impact that it has. Our guest today is in Glasgow. We recorded this just before he left. Harvey Locke is a big part of the reason the idea of protecting biodiversity as a way of combating climate change is on the table at Glasgow now. He leads a movement called Nature Needs Half. It's a simple idea. We need to protect half the planet's natural spaces in order to halt the mass extinction we're descending into and reverse global warming. In our discussion, we talk about why that's achievable and necessary. Based out of Alberta, Harvey Locke has dedicated his life to saving the world's wild spaces. He's the co-founder of the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative and the chair of the Beyond Aichi Targets Task Force, which we'll get into in the interview. So without further ado, Harvey Locke, welcome to the Explore podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. So you're off to Glasgow. In the realm of your conservation efforts, your biodiversity efforts, what do these big conferences mean to you or how do they slot into getting things done? You know, I, I work on nature conservation and the intersection between nature conservation and the climate. And those issues are, are issues that telescope. They're, they're literally in your backyard. They scale up to your, your region, your province, your country and worldwide. And if we don't have integrated actions at all those scales, we're not going to solve either the biodiversity crisis or the climate change crisis, which are both profoundly interconnected. So I, I go to these global gatherings with that in mind that this scale has to work, as does every other scale. And I think there's a, sometimes people think, oh, these things don't matter. They're just big gap fests. You know, people gather, they're flying around when they're burning fossil fuels when they shouldn't. You have to get it together at a global scale to get it together at a local scale. And there is no such thing as solving all problems locally, nor is there any such thing as solving all problems globally. There was just a uh, conference in Kunming on specifically on biodiversity that just ended. And for, th for those of us who weren't paying as close attention as you, what came out of that and what are you hoping to carry from that forward into Glasgow? And so there's, there's three Rio de Janeiro conventions that come from 1992 when the world first realized we were in need of taking serious collective global action to solve the, the planetary crises that, that we knew existed in 1992. Mm -hmm. One of those is the Biodiversity Convention, one of those is the Climate Convention, and the third one is the Desertification Convention, which tends to be less relevant to Canada. Those conventions um, have their own COPs, or conferences of the parties. And so the one in Glasgow for the climates and in the news right now is coming up. The one for the biodiversity started in China actually two weeks ago 
And interestingly, it's split in two because of the COVID crisis. So they had an opening round. They did a little declaration. But there's actually still a negotiating session to be had in January. And then next April will be when the sort of rubber hits the road. And hopefully we'll have what's called the new global biodiversity framework, which will be equivalent to the Paris Agreement, if you will, on the climate side. And there is one in place already from 2010 called the Aichi targets, because that's mm -hmm. where the, that big meeting was in 2010 was in Aichi Prefecture in, in Japan. And so this is sort of the replacement thing. So for I've spent the last several years focusing on what that replacement is going to be and been chairing a global task force for the IUCN World Commission on Protected Areas about what those targets ought to be for nature conservation and so I've been very, very involved in that convention on biodiversity process. And one of the things that the science has become super clear to everybody about is that you can't solve the climate crisis without protecting nature. And you can't protect nature without tackling the climate crisis because the climate crisis can cause everything to just, you know, be displaced, meltdown, whatever. So it's really two sides of the same coin. And for the first time on the climate side, Nature is one of the four goals of the climate meeting next week, which is why I'm going. Right. So that's a huge step. Well, this is a very big evolution and a very necessary one. And it's kind of odd that in 1992, we could see these things were connected. Yeah. And then they kind of drifted apart. And you could hear people say things like, well, they're separate topics. Mm. Well, they're not separate topics. They're the same topic. It's the health of the planet <laughs> and all the things that make the planet run, whether that be how we store, how nature is, takes up the carbon that we emit, or how, you know, the interact, interactions among, among species and abiotic processes and ecosystems create stable environments that give us fresh water to drink, um, or that a forest like the Amazon forest actually drives mm -hmm. regional weather patterns. Um, the whole thing is interconnected profoundly, and the error we've made is thinking they're separate topics. So you talk about the Aichi targets, and there's a lot of numbers being thrown around about how we need to conserve chunks of this planet and oceans. And so I think there were, at one point there was 17% of the landmass and 10% of the oceans. And then I think we're up to now, the idea was 30% of everything. But there's also Nature Needs Half, which is a movement now, which I think you're pretty involved in, where really it's like we need to separate off half our planet for... Which, which seems like a lot. And um, I'm just wondering, I mean, how, how much of that is going to be part of what's going to be discussed in Glasgow? What numbers are you looking for to achieve and what seems realistic? What's, what's on yeah, the table? So, so this idea of conservation targets, how much of the world we need to protect mm -hmm. in some way that is about keeping nature running rather mm -hmm. than exploitation. Mm -hmm. Um, the current global targets that come out of Aichi is 17% of the land, 10% of the ocean. Mm -hmm. Those were just pulled out of the sky. There was no empirical scientific basis for those numbers. <laughs> uh, the and recently, the World Conservation Congress in Marseille, which is a very big deal, thousands and thousands of people in France in September, passed Motion 101 that says, we need to recognize that the science is to have the world function the way we want it to. We need to protect at least half the world. Mm -hmm. And at a very minimum, we need to do at least 30% by 2030. So that's where this idea of 30% by 2030 is sort of grounded in the science. There's now 75 countries, including Canada, advocating for a target of at least 30% of the world land and ocean to be protected that would go into the 
global biodiversity framework that's going to be finalized next year mm -hmm. in the biodiversity convention. And so that sort of foundational piece of everything also links to the climate. So um, an important document issued in June was the G7 2030 Leaders Nature Compact. So our prime minister, other prime ministers, presidents, you know, um, Trudeau, um, Biden, Merkel, Johnson, you know, um, Macron, yes. all signed this thing saying the world must not only be net zero or carbon neutral, the world must also be nature positive. In other words, we have to shift. And a, a sign of becoming nature positive is halt all extinctions and reverse biodiversity loss by 2030 and protect at least 30% by 2030. So that's how these ideas are starting to come together on the global stage. I don't expect there to be something specific about protecting at least 30% or half in, in Glasgow, but there will be plenty of conversations about the actual goals for the Glasgow COP include protecting and restoring ecosystems as a topic for the climate COP. So of course, these ideas inform that, but they won't be setting a target, like a spatial target in Glasgow. That's done over on the other side of the house in the Biodiversity Convention, which is a UN convention with all the same parties, with the singular exception of the United States, which is only part of the Climate Convention and not the Biodiversity Convention. So I'm just curious how it works when you start talking about setting aside large chunks of the planet. And we're blessed to live in Canada, which has a lot of natural spaces to it already. Um, but you start looking at Europe or Southeast Asia or, you know, places that are heavily, I mean, how do you come to a term that, you know, we're all playing by the same scale here and which has got to be incredibly difficult. That's a wonderful question. And it was actually one of the central challenges that the committee I chair on these targets for the IUCN World Commission on Protected Areas had to grapple with. If you know that the science is this, and we surveyed, did the most comprehensive scientific surveys ever done on these questions, massive scientific literature review, meetings all over the world with people, and yeah, those are the numbers, protect at least half the world. But then you say, well, how can you do that practically? And it turns out that the world is basically in three conditions. Mm -hmm. There's large wild areas. We have them in Canada. So the Arctic mm -hmm. is a large wild area. But there's also um, areas that are less wild, but still in pretty good shape. So if you think about where I live in Banff, you know, we have highways and railways and communities and in the landscape around here, there's some logging and mining and so on. But broadly speaking, there's a lot to work with. And this is where you get ideas of interconnected networks like the Yellowstone to Yukon idea where you have big parks and you link them up. Mm -hmm. But there's also the cities and farms landscape, which is heavily transformed. So we did an analysis, um, a team of, I was the lead author, but a team of about 12 of us from all over the world, China, Brazil, Africa, Western Europe, US, Canada. We looked at these three conditions globally, and then we developed a suite of strategies that would apply across those conditions where like conditions exist. So some countries, like take Rwanda, fascinating place. Mm -hmm. It has very, very high human population density is 92% cities and farms, mm -hmm. but it's 8% in this other condition, which are actually first-class national parks. One's a tropical rainforest called Nyungwe. One's where the mountain gorillas are, where it adjoins Uganda and the Congo. Mm -hmm. And another is a savanna area that kind of goes towards the East African savanna that we all know about from the Serengeti and so on. And, and that looks really different if you look at it regionally than just nationally. 
you can see those other things sort of branch out outside of Rwanda. Mm -hmm. But Rwanda can't do the same things Canada can do because they don't have the large wild areas. Whereas next door, the Democratic Republic of Congo is actually kind of similar to Canada. Yeah. And it turns out China is similar to Canada. Brazil is similar to Canada. Large countries tend to have all three of those conditions. Small ones sometimes basically only have one or a little bit of one or, one or two, like Uruguay or Rwanda. And in Western Europe, everything's basically cities and farms or else that kind of intermediate shared landscape, with the exception of some a few areas in like Sweden and Norway at the very north. Um, so the idea is that you can have a global target and then you figure out what you need to do in each of those conditions to achieve what you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And what you're trying to achieve is actually different in each. So if you're, if you have large wild areas, we know that keeping the boreal forest and peatlands intact, mm -hmm. keeping those big old wet temperate forest trees in British Columbia intact is vital for both biodiversity and for carbon storage and absorption. Same with the Amazon, same with the Congo Basin, same with the Southeast Asia forest and peatlands. We need a strategy to keep those intact and a lot more than just a percentage. We need to keep those systems intact, period. Mm -hmm. Like the whole thing. The Amazon, the science is if we clear more than 20% of the Amazon forest, it'll stop raining. Wow. It stops raining, the thing flips to a savanna. Mm. Whoops. And then we have regional catastrophe and weather rainfall patterns shifting climate releases, biodiversity collapse. I mean, we do not want that to happen. None of us do. And it's not just an issue for countries in the Amazon. It's an issue for everyone. Mm -hmm. Well, turns out, you know, our, the, the, one of the biggest sinks of carbon in the world is the boreal forest peatlands of Canada. Wow. We should not be disturbing that, releasing that to the atmosphere, because if we do, not only will we continue to lose caribou, which we've been losing really rapidly, not only will we negatively affecting the hemispheric migration of songbirds, some species of which actually go to the Amazon, mm -hmm. um, but also we will cause a climate release so severe that it wouldn't matter what we did with the world's cars. Huh. And so we've got to think this through. Whereas in the cities and farms areas, we need to think about humans' access to nature, keeping herbicide, herbicides and pesticides out of freshwater systems so they don't get in the freshwater, kill the river, go down and then kill the estuary where most people, where a lot of the best fisheries in the world are. Um, we need to keep pollinators in the system, which means allowing like having at least 20% native vegetation, not really 20% in parks, but 20% native vegetation around farm fields and, mm -hmm. and along rivers and, you know, maybe along roads so that we actually have pollinators because pollinators drive agriculture. Um, and so we, we've just got at every scale, we need a strategy that works for the problem. The problem of maintaining caribou in northern Canada is not the problem of maintaining pollinators in southwestern Ontario. Those are two really different problems. They're both important, and each needs its own strategy. So that was the idea behind this three conditions of the world approach to these targets. That's fascinating. And, I mean, you, you talk a lot about forests because forests are obviously hugely important. I mean, when we're talking about setting aside these nature areas, I mean, how much of it is just letting nature be nature and how much is it is reforesting where we need to reforest and how much of, I mean, how important is that at this point? That's a really great question. You know, we tend to be action oriented. So we say things like, we're going to um, replant trees to save the climate. Mm -hmm. Well, if you want to save the climate, quit cutting down old trees. Right. Are more important than planting new ones. Not even in the same league. And, you know, the IPCC, which is the 
scientific body for the climate convention has these two paragraphs in their 2019 land use report that says, you want immediate climate benefits, protect forests, peatlands, grasslands, intact. You want longer term benefits for the climate, try to restore them. And the problem is that we're focused on the action, which is sort of the second order strategy, which is replanting, you know, all that kind of stuff. When what we really need to be doing is focused on keeping everything intact, intact, wherever it is, whether it's in that cities and farms condition, little fragments of intact landscape, whether it be grasslands or forests or whatever, right through to these really large systems like arboreal forest, our temperate, you know, the, the temperate rainforests that remain with very few now, you know, there's a big issue in BC about this, the Amazon, the Congo, and so on. Um, and our grasslands in Canada, the native grass in Canada, we should not be breaking another square meter of that sod. We should be keeping it intact. Those are huge carbon storehouses that are really important for biodiversity, for birds and other things. Um, and and we, do, we need to do less. That's the really interesting thing. And I wish I could take credit for that statement, but it actually comes out of a famous British economist named Des Gupta, who mm -hmm. did a review of the economics of biodiversity for the UK government this year. Mm -hmm. It's really worth reading. And he's an economist at Cambridge. And when it was launched, it was launched by Prince Charles and Boris Johnson and the Royal Society and by the, 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 the Dean of a College at Cambridge, you know, that they, they rolled out the whole hierarchy of British society to say this report matters. And one of the things that has got to said was we need to do less, mm -hmm. not more, less. We need to back off. Right. And, you know, we, you know, the problem that we have, and it's a really simple one, the things that worked for us when the planet we thought was infinite really made us successful. Mm -hmm. You know, successful just if you think of us as a species, you know, going from a billion 200 years ago to 7.3 billion now. Mm -hmm. Wow, is that a successful species? How about money? Well, look at the size of the global economy. It's just enormous compared right. to what it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. Wow, did that work? Except now we're destroying the context for all human life, including the economy. Mm -hmm. We're changing the climate. We're, we're destroying the oceans with... Uh, by overfishing, we've overcleared the land, we've caused an extinction crisis, forecasts are we could lose up to a million species. Well, that's like right. pulling all the rivets out of all the airplanes and saying, let's continue to fly. Mm. We just can't continue this way. We've got to change. And the change has to be, we've got to realize that we live on Earth. And it's not like a competing interest between the environment and society and the economy. And we're not following this old model of trying to find the little sweet spot that's sometimes called the sustainable development, you know, little bullseye there where the diagrams overlap. What we need to do is reconceive the whole thing and sort of in a circular kind of bullseye fashion where the whole thing is the environment. That's the space for everything. That's the climate. That's where everything else lives, including humans. Inside that space mm -hmm. and wholly dependent on it is human society. And inside human society and wholly dependent on human society is the economy. And the economy is only there to serve people. It has mm -hmm. no other function. And humans can only live on a healthy planet. We cannot live anywhere else. And we can spend billions of dollars flying people into space and it doesn't matter. We can only live on planet Earth. And so we've got to get that right. And right now we've got it wrong. And this is a profound challenge for humanity. And this is why these global meetings matter because you know, one of the things the Convention on Biodiversity's goal is to look after the health of the Earth ecosystem, but the whole functioning of the Earth. 
And that's why we need to think across all these scales. And then what we do locally, don't mm -hmm. cultivate any more grasslands on farms in Canada. Don't stop. You know, it's, it's, so it gets right from that scale right out to what we do at Planet Earth with Global Meetings. Hi, we're going to take a quick break from this episode so I can plug a very important event, the Royal Canadian Geographical Society's online silent auction. You can visit the auction site by going to rcgsauction.ca. There you can scroll through the site to see all the amazing items available, everything from exotic trips led by RCGS explorers to autographed books, art, clothing, and more. All the money raised from the auction supports vital society programming, like free geographic learning resources for more than 26,000 members of Canadian Geographic Education, allowing world-renowned explorers to take part in expeditions all over Canada and share their stories, funding crucial Canadian geographic research, and bringing Canadian geography to more than 4 million enthusiasts a month through Canadian Geographic's many platforms. To bid on auction items, please visit www.rcgsauction.ca. Bidding closes Sunday, November 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And now, back to our podcast. I recently interviewed uh, Daniel Pauly, the fisheries expert. I was trying to get at what is giving him hope, and he wouldn't say that he has hope necessarily, but the thing he said was, the amazing thing about humankind is that in moments of crises, we tend to throw up these leaders that can sort of grab us by the, the shirt collar and like, you know, give us all a shake, like a Winston Churchill or a Nelson Mandela or a which I, I put back to him was hopeful, but um, I, I just wonder where you find hope in all of this, because as has been laid out pretty clearly by the UN and others, this is a pretty critical decade, isn't it? Well, you know, the, the, the thing that, hope is an interesting thing. You always have to have hope, even if it's not reasonable to have it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you have despair and you're looking for a high bridge that you can jump off, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to have hope, even if there's no objective basis based on current trends, which is something that everybody who reads the scientific literature and publishes in it is terrified, mm -hmm. truly terrified. I mean, if you're talking about Daniel Pauly fishing down the food chain, you know, you just see yeah. the decline of the large predator fish from sharks to salmon to, you know, mm -hmm. there's just this collapse happening and five out of the seven of the world's fisheries are completely overexploited and we're going to do our best to get them all. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this is like desperately serious in the ocean. So uh, where hope lies is in knowing what you know and acting with passion and conviction on the things you know would make things better. Whether they are sufficient or not is a different question. But the one thing you can control as a human is what you do and how you know it could contribute to something. And None of us knows the future. So while trends are ugly, while the, you know, there's a lot of reason for concern, we don't know the future. What we do know is what we do to try to influence the future. And that's why everybody needs to start acting now. And this is this idea that I've worked on with a number of global colleagues. On the climate side, we know we need to be net zero or, or carbon neutral. We've developed this idea of a nature positive world which is we need to shift our actions from harming nature to becoming nature positive, just like our actions go from harming the climate to becoming carbon neutral mm -hmm. or, 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 or net zero. And we need an analog on the nature side and they're interconnected. Like we, we, to be nature positive, we have to stabilize the climate to get the net zero on the climate. We have to mm -hmm. protect nature a lot better than we are and do some restoration. 
Um, and so, and then of course, at the human level, we need an equitable framework for the world where, mm-hmm. you know, we're having these growing wealth disparity gaps and we're seeing, you know, these migration challenges that the world faces now. And the refugee numbers are, you know, the refugee stuff was created after World War II when there were a couple of million refugees. Mm-hmm. Now there's tens of millions of refugees. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we're protected by an ocean and we've got the United States between us and Central America. So we Canadians tend to, yeah. oh, well, we're kind, we're taking in 20,000 Syrians, or, which is a very good thing, by the way. I'm very proud mm-hmm. we did that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, really, this is a dynamic problem that is swamping regions of the world. Like if you went to the border between Colombia and Venezuela right now, there's millions right. of Venezuelans who've gone into Colombia. And you you take uh, the Syrian civil war. A lot of people think that was driven by by drought, which made farmers urbanize, and then the social issues that sorted out, and then you end up with this horrific Syrian civil war. This is actually going on now. And the challenge is, you know, we've always talked, and, you know, I've been at this for a long time now. 40 years I've been sort of attended my first environmental meeting 40 years ago, if you Mm -hmm. will. So so it's a long ride for me. we always had this time to act. We've just got a little bit of time. We can, we've got to act now. To, we still have time. Well, actually, now we don't have time. Right. We're now in the mud. It's up over our ankles. And the question is, where are they going to let us, that mud get so deep that it sucks us down? Right. And, or else we stop the mud, try to stabilize it, and then see if we can climb out of it or our grandchildren can climb out of it. But we're in the muck now. And if you live here in the West, um, I live in Banff. That heat dome this summer was yeah. fundamentally freaky. It wasn't, oh, what a hot weather pattern. It was impossible, and the impossible happened to us here. And it was the most extraordinary thing. Yeah. Um, and the smoke that we had, couldn't go outside in July for fear of it affecting your lungs. No. Um, you yeah, know, we have people in British Columbia now talking about a fire season. Like, that's one of the seasons now. Like, you know, Well, yeah, and, and in fact, you know, we're starting to get used to this idea of a new normal or a shifting baseline. This is mm-hmm. actually a pretty interesting idea. So we're starting subconsciously here in the Rockies to kind of think of August as fire season. Yeah. You know, we might have too much smoke to enjoy going backpacking or spending nights out in the bush. This summer, July was fire season. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, whoops, there is no adjusting to new normal. New normal is becoming chaotic. And look at the weather right now while we speak, the west coast of our continent is being lashed by by serious weather from the Pacific. And I heard the other day that the barometer was at the lowest level it's ever been measured at in the, the coast of British Columbia. You know, we're seeing these extreme weather events, which is exactly what we were told would happen by the climate modelers 25 years ago. And we're in it now. Right. And then the biodiversity side, We've been warned and warned and warned about an extinction crisis. You know, two weeks ago, they declared 23 species officially extinct in the United States. Yeah. They can't bring them back. They're gone. Yeah. And, you know, the, but the list of threatened species is incredibly long. And we don't even know all the world's species. And we have this conceit that we know how to manage all this. Well, mm-hmm. What we need to do is back off and let the rest of life flourish. And that will stabilize the climate, make the world more resilient, and give us hope. Yeah. I find what gives a lot of people hope is actually being able to do stuff in a local level. And you, you mentioned the Yellowstone to Yukon corridor you're, you're trying to set up. And 
I mean, I think that's a, a really great example. When I was in, I lived in Kenya for several years, and they were trying to set up similar animal corridors up from the south up up to Mount Kenya, as well, um, for, for exactly the same reasons. And I, can you just tell us a bit about where you're at with that with those that corridor, and what what are the challenges you're facing? So, so one of the things fascinating is that in the Yellowstone Yukon region, so Canada, U.S., Rocky Mountains, mm-hmm. um, we have the oldest national parks in the world. So Yellowstone's the oldest, Banff is the third oldest. The first peace park was on the border between water and glacier on the Alberta-Montana border. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've had these innovations that helped create protection, and these are old. Mm-hmm. Then what we realized in the 90s was that uh, parks as an island in the landscape would not maintain large mammals. Mm-hmm. They're just populations are too low. They have to move around to find mates, and they operate at a huge scale, way bigger than even those really big parks. So this is where we got the idea of linking them all together and co- uh, with a corridor that runs from Yellowstone to Yukon. That, that you know, not all landscape would be a park, but there would be parks interconnected with each other across the landscape. It also really works well for climate change because it's a north-south gradient, and we know that with climate change, as things warm, things will move north. It's also useful because they're mountains, so that things can move up and down valleys, you know, up mountainsides. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty robust strategy for our time, and has become world famous because of it. And people look at it as sort of an example of hope. The reason that we can have hope in this region is actually we're able to define the problem and then to take actions that we know to be meaningful to solve the problem. And we've been taking actions. And so we can literally buy a a 40-hectare parcel of land from a willing Mm. vendor that has a grizzly bear walking across it between two pieces of public land. Yeah. And so we can actually do that. In a lot of the world, there's more theory about, well, maybe we can reconnect this and maybe we can do that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Kenya. Yeah. Kenya is a great example. There's elephant movements that, you know, that around Mount Kenya, actually, you know, Beth Park is famous because we have the most extensive highway crossing structures in the world for animals mm-hmm. to go over and under the highway, the Trans-Canada. Mm-hmm. In Kenya, they built their first elephant underpass near Mount Kenya, like uh, in the area, and then down in Amboseli Park in the south of Kenya, they've got elephants migrating out of the park across some community-held lands, and they've been figuring out how to have a corridor there, and they're using electric fencing and channeling, and it's very interesting. I was on a field trip there last two years ago when we could still travel. And everybody knows that, that underlying all this is this really important idea that it isn't just patterns that we see. I see an elephant, it's fine. It's what does that elephant need to do to meet, it, meet its life needs and to maintain a viable population? And that process of migration or, you know, the, the flow of a river, it's not just that there be water in a river all the time like a rain gutter. Rivers have to be alive. They have to flow. Mm-hmm. They have to move their gravels and things to keep the life force going in the river. So it's both pattern and process that we need to maintain. And so we need to do that at a really large scale. And that, of course, scales right up to the functioning of the planet. If we start impairing the process, which is what we're doing, by putting too much of the carbon that's been stored in the earth into the sky, and then it comes into the ocean and overwhelms the ocean by overacidifying it or deoxygenating it, we disturb the process that feeds life. And this is the moment we're in. And so why Yellowstone to Yukon is kind of hopeful is because, hey, we've done this on one highway, we can do it on another. And we can actually do all the highways in the region because there's only a few. 
We can actually make the whole thing work that way. We could actually identify all the parcels of private land we think we need to work with landowners on to keep enough corridors between the public and private lands to do something. We can identify the large wild areas we still need to protect and get them protected. So it's possible in our region to do that. And that's why it provides hope to people. And that's why it's been energizing and enabling of people feeling, hey, I can contribute to this and it's going to work. Um, I wish everywhere was in at least as good condition as this region. Mm -hmm. It isn't. Um, but you can do stuff even locally. Like um, if you live in, let's say, southwestern Ontario, we know, for example, red oak trees yeah. um, have far more species than a non-native oak tree does of moths and things. Those red oak trees will attract more birds than a non-native deciduous tree species. So why not plant red oaks? Right. Um, and why not use native species in our gardens, our parks, our cities, our roadsides? And places like Singapore are doing this and having a really positive impact on biodiversity, even though it's a very busy place. Yeah. Um, they're taking this native species approach. And if we did that, we'd make a real difference even in people's backyards. And we'd be giving people hope and they'd see more birds and butterflies and have a sense of the world being more vibrant around them, which gives hope in and of itself. Well, that's a great sort of backyard take on what we can do as a as a species, and and certainly a hopeful message going forward too. I, before I let you go, and you've been very generous with your time, I have a question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and it's what's your favorite place in Canada? I'm wondering if it could be like a place you go into your mind when you need that happy place, like, or it's a may have been part of your childhood, may have maybe close to where you are, far away. But what's your favorite place in Canada? My favorite place in Canada and the world is Banff, and yeah. I get to live here. Yeah. And I kiss the ground every time I come home. Yeah. I'm looking out my window at a beautiful mountain right now. I have been in love with this place since I, before I can remember. My family's from here. I'm very, very lucky to be anchored in a place that I consider the most beautiful place in the world. Having said that, it's got lots of peers. Um, in the world or in our country. There are many other beautiful places in our country. You know, if I think of the magic of Killarney on a late September day with red maples and white marble and those warm lakes, it's just like, wow, what a great place. Or, mm. you know, standing in an old growth forest in British Columbia where you're just like in awe that this is alive. Or for me, uh, being out on the Great Plains and the prairies, when the, the air is full of bird song, there's a wind blowing, you can smell the, the grass in your nose, and you have this incredible sense of expanse. And, and you know, all those things I love deeply. I, I love the Nahani River, where I worked mm. for a long time to help expand that national park. It's like, I like to describe it as a nine-day tour through a mini golf course. You know, it's just <laughs> incredibly changing, spectacular, beautiful, yeah. great river to paddle because it's got a current, but it isn't too scary. Yeah. So, you know, all these things are, you know, you can tell I'm in love with the natural world that I, that I could run through a bunch of places around the world that I feel the same kind of energy. But yeah. at the end of the day, I am so lucky to live in Banff because I love it so very much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope everyone can hear the joy in your voice because, and that's what nature brings, right? I mean, absolutely brings us to the place we need to be to make. Yeah. And, and you know, something, if, if you don't mind me adding this, is that I work a lot around the world and I've traveled a lot. And the thing that I've learned, is that the love of nature is embedded in humans everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, I've sat on the forest floor in Sumatra, in Indonesia, with a local guide having lunch that his wife made for us. And we we're sitting there and there was a monkey 
came down and basically sat with us through lunch. And he was as turned on as I was by the whole experience. Um, I've, I've been bird watching with this, this guide and who's the best bird guide in Rwanda, who's absolutely extraordinary bird guide who is just as much in love with nature as I am. And you just you make this kinship relationship with people where it doesn't matter where we're from. Nature is, you know, as, as Wordsworth said, nature never betrayed the heart that left her. That's exactly the point we're going to leave at. Perfect. Thank you so much, Aubrey Locke. And good luck on your, your trip out to Glasgow. Thanks for being interested in this stuff. If you want to learn more about what we discussed here, check out natureneedshalf.org and also the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative at y2y.net. I'd also encourage you to read Leslie Anthony's article about the intertwined biodiversity and climate crises, which is in the November-December issue of Canadian Geographic magazine. There's a lot of food for thought in there. And a big thanks to all of you out there who have rated and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere this season. It makes a huge difference and helps us to reach as many listeners as possible, which is key to keeping this podcast alive and well. And now... On to Cangeo Soundscapes, where you, the listener, send in audio or video clips of your favorite sounds recorded somewhere in this great land of ours. This one comes from RCGS explorer and residence, George Karunas. This is the sound of raw natural power. The North Atlantic crashing into the easternmost point of Canada, Cape Spear, Newfoundland. If you close your eyes, you can almost picture the lighthouse high on the rocky cliffs and feel the ocean spray on your face. Thanks for that, George. You can follow George's storm-chasing, volcano-diving adventures on Twitter at George Karunas and on Instagram at George underscore Karunas. We'd love to hear your favorite Canadian sound. Send them to us by tagging us using the hashtag CanGeoSoundscapes. We're on Twitter and Instagram at CanGeo. And of course, be sure to subscribe to Explore where you listen so you don't miss future episodes. That's it for this edition of Explore. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means, it means that he knew all history is very strong. And we flew low over every inch of the country that could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 100 